everyone, and welcome to Healthcare Perspectives 360, a podcast dedicated to exploring contemporary healthcare issues from multiple perspectives. I'm Jerry Amori, and today I am joined by Michelle Mello, JD, PhD, a health law scholar at Stanford, John Robert Bautista, RN, MPH, PhD, a doctor, postdoctoral teaching fellow at University of Texas, Austin, focusing on health misinformation, and Brian Southwell, PhD, who is a scientist focusing on science misinformation and the public sphere at RTI International. Welcome. Today, we are talking about how misinformation creates disparities in healthcare for patient populations and how the problem is affecting marginalized populations. So let's begin. Brian, it's been said that distrust of the healthcare system is linked to an easier spread of misinformation. Why might this be true or not? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. You know, I I think this notion of, um, of trust uh, as vital to the discussion is is really important for us to keep in mind. Um, you know, trust is um, absolutely likely to be part of the remedy as we deal with uh, misinformation. That said, I also worry that we sometimes um, you know, misunderstand um, exactly what's going on you know, here. I don't know that we. it's fair to say, for example, that there are certain folks that are just inherently um, you know, never going to believe um, you know, what's what's said or that are inherently uh, mistrustful. I think we see ebbs and flows and um, different dynamics over time. And something that we do know from uh, empirical literature is that the, the more the people understand about how the process of science works, the more that they have confidence in scientific institutions. And so I think a big part of the equation that's been missing for much of the popular discussion about this is that uh, we don't necessarily have widespread uh, popular understanding of the scientific processes that generate our evidence. So we tend to focus on uh, you know, relationships with different institutions, but we don't necessarily realize that well, people don't necessarily always even understand the process of peer review. And so the more confidence that you have in scientific institutions, you know, the more likely you are to pay attention to whether a source is peer reviewed or whether a, a piece of journalism relies on peer reviewed evidence. So I think the key to all this is really um, increasing, or a key anyway, is increasing people's understanding of the scientific process. And I tend to have a lot of faith and confidence um, that um, you know, with more widespread understanding that we actually would have um, you know, less ready acceptance of, um, of misinformation under many circumstances. Okay, so you, you're saying that better understanding of the scientific process might really help us here if we had more widespread belief in that. That's good. Hey, Robert, well, you know, the World Health Organization shared the viewpoint that the healthcare infodemic, meaning too much information, including false or misleading information, has impacted both the U.S. and non-U.S. underserved populations. Do you believe that's true? And how might misinformation affect behaviors in vulnerable groups? Okay, um, it's important to point out that based on literature, belief in misinformation is linked to a lack of health literacy. And having a low health literacy makes it difficult for someone to distinguish true and false health information. And what we do know is that low health literacy is a global problem that greatly impacts those that are socioeconomically disadvantaged populations, whether in the developed country or in a developing country. So what happens is that if people lack health literacy, they're susceptible to health information that is unreliable, that might be spread by close contacts. More often, what happens is that in places where there is low health literacy, 
they also don't have access to appropriate healthcare, so they don't have interactions with health providers that can provide the correct health information that they need. For instance, in one case, at least we go in the context of the U.S., um, the Kaiser Family Foundation study in 2021 showed that the greater belief in misinformation is linked with poor healthcare decision making and such as not deciding to take a COVID-19 vaccine. So we have issues on health literacy, even in a developing country. On the other side of the globe, for instance, um, back in my hometown in the Philippines, uh, we had this controversy about dengue vaccines when it, that was in 2017. And that was a flashpoint in the spread of vaccine misinformation even before COVID-19 happened. So it did lead to vaccine hesitancy for COVID, also other vaccines, and that is the problem. And thus, health literacy is really a concern that needs to be addressed if we want to address health misinformation. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about mm -hmm. it from that perspective. In fact, haven't some studies been done that show that just among general population, the health literacy is so low that most adults are uh, not really health literate. They may be literate in other ways, but not health literate. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So, Michelle, medical misinformation isn't new. We've already kind of talked about that a little before when we were prepping for today. Just thinking about the historical tobacco industry's attempts to camouflage, you know, secondhand smoke risks years ago, does the current misinformation spread echo similar disproportionate effects upon different sociological groups? So if so, whose fault is that? Who's responsible? You know, we blamed, eventually we blamed big tobacco in the past. Yeah. And we blame drug companies. We blame social media platforms. Or are we blaming the victims themselves? Um, what do you think? Well, the question about disparate impact is, is an interesting one. I think Robert's already spoken to that a little bit. I, I will add that one interesting wrinkle for, for vaccines, which is the area that I work the most in, is that historically it has not been primarily low health literacy vulnerable populations that have been vaccine hesitant you know and, and driven by misinformation that the classic demographic is actually someone who looks like me you know a middle-aged uh middle upper income white woman who is well educated and you know quote unquote does her own research so it's it's quite interesting that during covid the uh the demographic base, the target audience for this misinformation has has broadened and, and you know, in some pretty pernicious ways. You ask, you know, you know who's responsible? And, um, you know, this time, I think there are some distinctions to historical cases where um, misinformation or disinformation has been a problem in public health, like efforts of tobacco companies to sow doubt about health-related harms of smoking or efforts of polluting industries to sow doubt about the existence of acid rain and other environmental harms. Um, you know, there are certainly still companies out there, um, like those hawking COVID cures that have participated in, in misinformation in recent years. But the, the base of speakers is broader now, and they're not all just sowing misinformation in order to further their economic self-interest as a, a business. I think it's a more complicated constellation of different voices with different motives. And the, you know, the maybe most interesting development is the degree of entanglement between a certain segment of the Republican population 
and misinformation. There are, you know, known links now between right-leaning PACs, political action committees, and organizations that are anti-vaccine and that operate under the general rubric of health freedom. Um, And, you know, health freedom has been a tagline that, again, not uh, certainly not all Republican politicians, but a certain kind of Republican politician in this political moment has found it expedient to kind of pick up as a as a platform um, for themselves. So it's this joining of folks who historically have been opposed to vaccines with a much broader swath of the population who is upset about COVID restrictions and and desires this this so-called health freedom that that now has made it possible for speakers of misinformation to get their message out much more broadly because they're not restricted to their own accounts and social media anymore. They find amplification in certain politicians who get airtime and, of course, on certain mass media networks themselves, like Fox News, that has found viewership in programs that promulgate this kind of of information. And again, that's not to say that all of these speakers believe themselves to be spreading misinformation. Perhaps some do. Many probably don't. You know, and I often think about there's this line in Seinfeld um, where George trying to coach Jerry on passing a lie detector test. And he says, remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. That is probably the case for a lot of the voices that have joined this um, movement today that they believe in the cause of health freedom and they believe specifically in this information. And so trying to think about it as we have thought about other kinds of misinformation in the past can sometimes be a little bit confusing. That makes sense to me. It is confusing and and you're right because people believe a lot of things and they don't believe that they're spreading misinformation. Well, Robert, in November, Twitter lifted its ban on COVID misinformation, lifted the ban on COVID misinformation, basically saying it's okay to spread misinformation. So does that mean that Twitter is supporting misinformation or they're taking responsibility or they're denying responsibility? Can you elaborate on how social media algorithms magnify or potentiate disparate and inequality in treatment? Like certain people like follow certain leads, right? Tell me more about this. I'm confused. Twitter and other social media platforms have a gatekeeping role in the flow of information. And lifting the content moderation on COVID-19 misinformation really caused concerns to public health advocates. It coincides with one of the moves of Twitter to, um, in the time that Elon Musk took over the company wherein he promised that Twitter would uphold free speech. And that's part of the event wherein he also reactivated Donald Trump's Twitter account. But I mean, um, Donald Trump doesn't really use Twitter now, but the account is already active. So that's part of ways that he opposed free speech, at least from his perspective on Twitter. And since Twitter will not control the extent by which COVID misinformation is being spread, uh, we just have to rely on users to report if a tweet is considered misinformation. Unfortunately, users do not necessarily report such tweets. Uh, research shown that people often ignore if they see misinformation, they don't bother about it. And the implication there is that you can be exposed to information that conforms to your worldview because the algorithm is set up to provide you information that you deem to be relevant, that you think that is relevant for you. So you risk having an information eco chamber 
when the algorithm can predispose a person to be exposed to the same information which repeatedly exposes them, for instance, to misinformation. And that is a vicious cycle that keeps on continuing. So although we encourage people to cross-check their sources, that is easier said than done, especially when vulnerable populations often lack health literacy, health literacy to discern what is true and what is false health information. So that is really problematic. Yeah, that is. Well, Brian, you know, we've had health disparities here. We know that in social classes and, and socioeconomic classes. And, and so based on what Michelle and Robert just said, can you share an overview of the correlation between this widening disparity in health and misinformation? Or is there one? I think it's it's very relevant for us to think about health disparities in this conversation as we explore misinformation. It's really important, though. Um, we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, avoiding victim blaming, and I think on this particular question, we really have to be careful not to engage in, in victim blaming. Uh, just because people, just because there are people who are suffering, um, you know, from health disparities. Of course, there are many. Just because there are those folks and they also have access to low quality information you know, by and large, it doesn't mean that folks who are suffering health disparities inherently like misinformation more, uh, wish to have that, you know, to be trafficking in that it doesn't mean that they're actually even any more psychologically um, you know, more vulnerable. You can offer comments about you know, their ability to discern you know, peer reviewed evidence and that type of thing. But, but generally speaking, there's a lack of evidence that, that suggests there's a causal order here that somehow misinformation is to blame for the uh, structural racism and the structural disparities that we have in this country. And I think, you know, we've got to be careful. We wouldn't want to blame um, you know, people for living in a poor part of town uh, for the state of their neighborhood, you know, just because of somehow their inherent character. Um, and I think we've got to put a, shine a light on you know, the, the structural disparities that got us into this situation. Now, the misinformation that people have in um, instead of higher quality uh, evidence, it's not helping anything. Um, and it's certainly not helping them you know, close the gap uh, with regards to disparities. But I just think it's important to not sort of view misinformation as the um, beginning of this chain reaction um, and, the, and the sequence, but rather just a really unfortunate dysfunctional part of that's, that's happened along the way in, in this system. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it it would be easy to blame the misinformation too. That would be just as bad. Michelle, sometimes the voices spreading this misinformation on social media are actually people with MDs or RNs or you know things after their name. They're healthcare professionals. What do you think about that? What is their role? And overwhelmingly, healthcare practitioners, especially during COVID, have have been a, just a tireless force for good and trying to help people understand the complexities of what's going on and how it affects them and, and what they can do to protect themselves. But there have been a small number of physician voices that have um, a lot of volume and that gained a platform either in social media or in mass media or in the political leadership structure very quickly because of their contrarian views. You know, I think the effect has been pretty significant. We've been talking about how difficult it can be for people to distinguish reliable and unreliable information. And when you have a person with medical credentials who se seems to have an awesome pedigree and seems very trustworthy and is listened to in the halls of power, um, and is spreading this information, you, you know, it hasn't it has an impact. And 
We also shouldn't forget that historically, the entire anti-vaccine movement essentially started because of an article published by a physician, Andrew Wakefield, that linked the MMR vaccine to autism. That study was subsequently discredited, but the myth persists and is associated with this physician's work. So this is a big problem. We know that among all of the agents of medical and scientific messages, people trust their physicians the most, by far far more than any government agency or scientists. Uh, they trust their personal physicians. And again, some of these physicians have been elevated to positions where their, their voice has a, a long reach. So it is certainly a concern. And there's you know been writing by medical ethicists about the extent to which promulgating misinformation should be thought about as a violation of the Hippocratic Oath, um, which is to do no harm, because it does. Thank you, Michelle. Okay, we're coming to the end of our talk today. So if I'm, if you would, I'm going to ask each of you to give us in one sentence or two, the one thing that you want our audience to take away. Let's start with you, Robert. Well, medical misinformation is here to stay as a public health threat, and we need to ensure that everyone becomes resilient to it. Thank you. Brian. I think ultimately we have to think a lot more about our information systems um, and their nature, you know, how we got you know, to this point in time. And we have to think about the effects of structural disparities and trying to account for um, the nature of our, our public health. And we've got to worry less, I think, about blaming individual people for falling victim to misinformation. We have to view the problem of misinformation as a societal one. Um, and I think that we have to understand that there are societal level remedies that um, would benefit all of us. Thank you. Michelle? I think what strikes me is that although we've been talking about how misinformation is not new, there are some distinctive things about our current moment, both in terms of the diversity of, of speakers of misinformation and how broad the audience for their messages has become. You know, in an age of COVID in particular, that's just deeply concerning. And it's especially concerning because of the difficulty of rolling back false beliefs once they take root. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all three of you. This has been an amazingly great conversation. And I really want to thank our panelists and our listening audience. I hope our discussion today has provided you with some new insights. Thank you again for joining us. And we'll see you again next time on Perspectives 360.